in every family, including the church family, conflicts are inevitable. Disagreements occur. Feelings are hurt. Heart motivations are suspected. Uncharitable judgments are made. There's hasty, unloving speech. There can be gossip, backbiting, grumbling, distrust. In everything, including the church family, conflicts are inevitable. By God's grace, I've been a Christian now for 25 years, and a pastor for 14, and the Word of God and personal experience have taught me that we can be genuine Christians, attending corporate worship meetings of the church and being fairly involved, growing spiritually as the years go on, yet over time we can accumulate a series of unresolved conflicts with our brothers and sisters, uh, disagreements never discussed, dark episodes never brought into the light. And over time, those unresolved conflicts sap and erode, they undermine our relationships with one another. They undermine our love. They undermine our gospel unity. Yet God tells us in His Word that broken relationships in the church must be repaired. Relational wounds must be healed. Forgiveness sought and granted. Christian love and humility displayed. In God's power and grace, those things aren't only possible, they're 100% necessary. Matthew 5.21. I want you to turn there with me. This is on page uh, 969, if you're using our church Bible. Matthew 5.21. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Rapha, that's, a, that's an Aramaic word of contempt, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Which means, if we've come this morning not having been reconciled to our brother or sister in Jesus Christ, and yet here we are, offering our worship up to God, singing and praying together, sitting under the Word, enjoying the Lord's Supper. We're only fooling ourselves. That's the worst sort of religious hypocrisy. And Jesus says we're in danger of judgment. Because being civil and nice isn't what's required of us. No, God's called His church to a much higher standard. Beloved, we're to be a showboat in this fallen world of the transforming power of the gospel in all of its glory. A showboat. So here's the question. What is the source? What's the source of relational problems in the church? And I don't, I don't mean the church at large. I'm talking about New City Baptist Church of Toronto, Canada, because none of us are immune to uh, relational sin. You say, what is the source of our relational problems? That's an essential question. And our servant pastor today clearly provides the answer. And the answer is this. It is our worldly values that divide and polarize us. It's our worldly values. There are godly values, and there are worldly values. And when we bring worldly values and worldly standards and estimations into the Church of Jesus Christ, and we make that the yardstick, then the Gospel promises which actually unite us, which form the very basis of our union with Jesus Christ, it's been displaced by a satanic counterfeit. It says, we read in our text this morning, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? And the answer is, nothing. What fellowship can light have with darkness? None whatsoever. 
What harmony is there between Christ and Satan? None. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Nothing. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? None whatsoever. Brothers and sisters, we are a new people. We're a changed people. We are the inheritors of gospel promises made by God to Israel in the Old Testament and fulfilled now in Jesus Christ. And because Christians are the inheritors of these promises, and because we fear God with a, with a reverent awe, we must, therefore, cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body, our spirit, working toward complete holiness, complete sanctification. In other words, bringing our relationships under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, which is our title for the 2023 New Year's Sermon, which is especially important as we potentially merge this year with another local church. Bringing our relationships under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let me explain that a bit more. There's a, there's a subtle complexity to this. This passage, in its context, and I don't think many people understand this, this passage, in its context, is primarily about the relationship between the Apostle Paul and the members of the church in Corinth. Read through 2 Corinthians, and you'll see the Corinthians had adopted a worldly standard. It was a false standard in assessing Paul's apostolic ministry and its implications. And that worldly standard then was corrupting their relationship between Paul and the church. The Corinthians had made their hearts small. They made their hearts incommodious toward their brother Paul, this apostle who had first preached the gospel to them. They were saying terrible things about him, spreading it around the church, and they were thinking terrible things about Paul in their hearts. Their love for their brother Paul had become small. Chapter 6, verse 11, 2 Corinthians. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Chapter 7, verse 2. Make room for us in your hearts. You see? And it sandwiched between these two exhortations to the Corinthians to open wide their hearts to Paul is our text this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 through 7, 1. And, and that's no accident. Those exhortations to open wide the hearts, they serve as bookends. Look at your big picture in your bulletin this morning. Paul reminds the Corinthians of the promises that are theirs as they partake of his new covenant ministry, promises the old covenant itself had prophesied. Because Christians are the inheritors of these promises, and because we fear God, we must cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit, working toward complete holiness, complete sanctification. This is a passage where spiritual truths and principles can be applied to our own relationships in the church. Relationships we want to keep as holy as possible, placing them under the Lordship of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Which is why I thought it would be a good text for our 2023 kickoff. You said, we need to understand these gospel truths. That we might be on guard against the, the fiery arrows of the evil one. Those, those worldly values which seek to destroy our Christian love and our relationships. Particularly as we seek God's will in merging with another church in 2023. Let me say one thing more. Probably the best known verse in the whole book of 2 Corinthians is chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And if you were to ask Christians what that verse means, most would respond, perhaps you would respond, a Christian must not marry an unbeliever. Which is certainly true. 
Christians must only marry in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7.39. You can only marry another Christian. Friend, hear me. If you're a Christian single, do not start a dating relationship with someone who is an unbeliever. I would go so far as to say, don't date someone who isn't a baptized member of a Bible-believing church. Uh, because you are not the arbiter, the judge, of someone's profession of faith. That's not a job God has given us as individuals. That's a job for a local church who has been given the authority, the keys to bind and loose by Jesus himself. Also, if you're a Christian single, do not missionary date an unbeliever. Do not date someone in the hope of winning them to Jesus Christ. In the hope that they may prove to be one of God's elect. You can't know such a thing. So don't allow yourself to develop romantic feelings for them. Or they for you. You're just going to hurt them and you're going to hurt yourself. Because you can't marry them. That would be sin, Christian. A clear violation of the word of God. If you're dating an unbeliever, if you're engaged to an unbeliever, you need to break it off. And 2 Corinthians 6.14 is the oft-cited proof text, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. But that's not correct. Sure, it's the right doctrine, uh, it's the right teaching, but it's the wrong text. Marriage relationships have nothing to do with 2 Corinthians chapter 6. The Corinthians weren't marrying unbelievers. That's introducing a subject foreign to the situation and the flow of Paul's argument. This passage is not primarily related to marriage with non-Christians or business relationships with unbelievers. Uh, rather, it speaks to church relationships. It concerns Christian fellowship and love, our unity in the gospel, and living life together in a way of holiness. Beloved, I'm excited to preach this text today. Uh, it's one of those passages that really ties the whole Bible together. There is a strong, strong salvation historical cord running throughout from Old Testament promise to New Testament fulfillment. This passage warns us against the allurements of idolatry and making judgments based on the world's standards. And it shows us what God has accomplished in the gospel. This eschatological hope in which we now live as the inheritors of what God promised to his old covenant people and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That this is a crossroads for a lot of redemptive history, this text today. New City, we are bringing our relationships under the lordship of Jesus Christ. I pray we do in 2023. So point number one, see this in your bulletin, we're going to go problem-solution, right? So, number one, the source of our relational problems, the worldly values that divide and polarize us. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. That image comes from Deuteronomy 22.10, it's a command in the law of Moses. Uh, do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. It's a throwback to the book of Genesis, uh, where every creature is created after its kind, which reminds the Israelites that God had separated them from the other peoples of the earth to be distinct and holy. But this isn't a, a general exhortation from Paul to the church to you know, avoid all contamination in the world, you know, to separate completely from the world. Uh, Paul is not telling the church, he's not telling individual Christians to retreat into like a siege mentality, uh, to circle the wagons in a holy huddle, you know, and as, as the world goes down the drain, lest we be besmirched with the world's foulness. He's not saying that. There are churches, there are Christians who do that very thing. They separate themselves from the world in every conceivable possible way. But all that does, it's not mature, it, it, it hinders a full orb understanding of the Christian life. If we start to focus on trivial taboos, we'll be distracted from central Christian truths. That kind of thinking fosters legalism. Uh, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. 
What we're reading here in verse 14 and 17, this isn't some absolute command to join a monastery, okay? I mean, you could take this, these verses out of context and really do some damage. Look at verse 14 and 17. Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. No. Christians are supposed to have meaningful relationships with all kinds of people. Unbelievers, too. Just not in dating relationships. We're supposed to be acting as salt in a world of moral decay. Right? We're light in a morally dark world, living as ambassadors for Jesus. We're making disciples of all nations, not living in Christian communes somewhere, in splendid isolation like the Amish. The Amish make for a great tourist attraction, but they have a lousy Christian witness in this world. Christians are very much in the world, but we're no longer part of the world, which means we no longer live like the fallen world adopting its godless values and allegiances. So, when Paul says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers, come out from them and be separate, he's not saying, don't marry unbelievers, or don't get into business relationships with unbelievers. What he means flows from the context. What comes before and after this point explains everything quite clearly, but it's difficult for us to see because we're just parachuting this morning into the middle of this book. The Corinthians, hear this, the Corinthians are to separate themselves from the world by not evaluating the Apostle Paul's apostleship according to the unbelieving standards of the world. And I say that again. The Corinthians are to separate themselves from the world by not evaluating Paul's apostleship according to the unbelieving standards of the world. We're going to take our time with this. It's essential we see this. And, uh, and you're going to need the Bible open on your laps, as always. Don't worry about the bird flying around, just look at me. <laughs> Up to this point in the letter, Paul's been answering criticisms about the way among, uh, some among the Corinthians were evaluating his apostolic ministry. And they were weighing his apostleship in the balance, and they were finding his apostleship wanting. That that same apostleship and authority granted to him by the resurrected Jesus Christ. This is serious business. The Corinthians believed that they had what Paul later calls super apostles in their churches. Apostles who were much more impressive than Paul. And the message they preached, their false gospel, was being heeded. As crazy as it sounds, that is what Paul is dealing with in the church in Corinth. The book of 2 Corinthians is an extended defense of the legitimacy of Paul's apostolic ministry and its implications in the life of the church. But can you imagine? I mean, it's come to this. It's come to this. So Paul has to defend his apostleship. And we can see throughout 2 Corinthians a number of answers from Paul to criticisms about his own person, his own truthfulness as a man, the, the worthiness of his message, and so on. For example, from chapter 1, and I want you to turn here with me. We're going to trace this out. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1. From chapter 1, we understand that Paul was accused of planning his visits to Corinth lightly, or in a worldly manner, so that in the same breath he would say yes and no. So look at uh, chapter 1, 12 to 17. Now, this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, with integrity, and godly sincerity, because they were saying we haven't. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us, just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident in this, I wanted to visit you first, so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia, and then to have you uh, send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? 
Or do I make plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? And, and later, Paul alludes to the fact that he was accused of not being able to present letters of recommendation to them or from them, as in chapter 3, verse 1, and still later in chapter 10, he mentions the fact that some leveled the charge against him of being bold when he was away, but timid when face to face. Chapter 10, verse 1. Check this out. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, when timid, when face to face with you, but bold toward you went away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. You are judging by appearances. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up, rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want this seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say, his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. We do not dare to classify ourselves or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but we will confine our boasting to the sphere of service God himself has assigned to us. A sphere that also includes you. And in other places, the Corinthians faulted Paul for not having received spectacular visions from heaven, of being no match for the rhetoric of some public speakers, of not having performed any miracle amongst them, and so forth. For some Corinthians then, Paul was no apostle, performing no miracles, having no credentials. On Corinth's got talent, Paul wouldn't have made it past the first round. To their perspective, to their thing. But the super apostles, preaching the false gospel in their midst, man, they got it all going on, and more. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. And by the way, I'm... I'm Reviewing as much as I am of Second Corinthians, I think, in my opinion, I think after the book of Revelation, I think the book of Second Corinthians is the least understood book in the Holy Testament. I don't think most Christians have a clue what's going on in this book. So look at Second Corinthians eleven one. The context is so important. I hope you will put up with me, uh, put up a little more of my foolishness. Please bear with me, for I am jealous for you with the jealousy of God Himself. I promise you, as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. But I fear that somehow your pure and unvited devotion to Christ will be corrupted, just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. You happily put up with whatever anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach, or a different kind of spirit than the one you received, or a different kind of gospel than the one that you believe. But I don't consider myself in fear in any way that these super apostles who teach such things. I may be unskilled as a speaker, but I am not lacking in knowledge. We have made this clear to you in every possible way. Was I wrong when I humbled myself and honored you by preaching God's good news to you without expecting anything in return? Because if Paul were anything special in the Corinthian thinking, uh, he would have charged fees like every other great teacher of his day. That means you were somebody if you charged a fee. That's what the wisdom of the world dictates. That's what the super apostles in this church did, but Paul didn't. Which makes Paul, in the mind of the Corinthians, a second-rate loser. Verse 8, I robbed other churches by accepting their contributions so I could serve you at no cost. And when I was with you and didn't have enough to live on, I did not become a financial burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia brought me all that I needed. I have never been a burden to you, and I never will be. 
As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, no one in the, all of Greece will ever stop me from boasting about this. Why? Because I don't love you. Why knows that I do? But I will continue doing what I have always done. This will undercut those who are looking for an opportunity to boast that their work is just like ours. These people are false apostles. They are deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. But I'm not surprised. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no wonder that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In the end, they will get the punishment their wicked deeds deserve. So do you see what's happened? In their evaluation of Paul's apostolic ministry, the Corinthians have adopted the values of the world around them. Values which uh, separated them from Paul, a worldview contrary to the gospel, and incompatible with it. That is the context of 2 Corinthians. That's the context of our passage this morning. And by doing so, this being the case, they then they look down on Paul's apostolic ministry. They look down on the one who was their spiritual father in Jesus Christ. So Paul says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. That is, do not adopt the world's ways, the world's values, nor the world's assessment of my apostolic ministry. That's what he's saying. The thing is, these unbelieving super-apostles, these false apostles, with their worldly views, their worldly behavior, their values, they seem to have free access to the Corinthians' hearts. And each of Paul's five rhetorical questions assumes a strong negative answer. Look at 2 Corinthians 6.14b. All these answers are very strongly negative. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Nothing whatsoever. It's absolute. Or, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? None. What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Belial means worthlessness or destruction, but here's a name for the devil. What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? None. Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Nothing. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? None at all. You see, more than just concerning marriage between a believer and an unbeliever, or business matters between a Christian and a non-Christian, here the Lord deals with all of our relationships with people, Christian and non-Christian alike. But especially, especially when it comes to relationships between apostles and the churches, between spiritual leaders and other members of the body of Christ, between pastor and pastor, or between pastor and congregation. In such relationships, there is no room for non-Christian values. There's no place for assessments of the ministry based upon non-Christian values. There's no room for worldly standards by which to measure spiritual success. And I think we're all prone to that. Do we, here's a question, do we trust worldly movie critics to judge the morality of Hollywood movies? No. If we do, then we're in for a big surprise. Uh, in the same way, do we read and preach the scriptures through the lens of, say, political correctness? Of course not. There are the values of this fallen world, and there is truth. How do we evaluate those men God has set apart as ministers of the gospel in this church? According to what we see on television, success stories coming from south of the 47th parallel, business models of the successful CEO. Don Carson wisely notes, we increasingly inhabit a time and place in Western history when humility is perceived to be a sign of weakness. When meekness is taken for a vice, not a virtue. When puff is more important than substance. When leadership, even in the church, frequently has more to do with politics, pizzazz, and showmanship, or with structure and hierarchy, than with spiritual maturity and conformity to Jesus Christ. When the budget is thought to be a more important indicator of ecclesiastical success than perfectness. And when loose talk of spiritual experience wins an instant following, even when that talk is mingled with scarcely concealed haughtiness that has learned neither humility nor tears. 
That's a great quote. God save us from that kind of thinking. God save the churches of Toronto. It's the values of this fallen world versus truth. Do we gauge the relevance of the gospel message by the eagerness of people to hear it? It's the values of this fallen world versus truth. On what basis do we evaluate the spiritual life of the local church? Counting heads? The budget? What are the marks of a healthy church? The values of this fallen world versus truth. Brothers and sisters, this text also has a bearing on our relationships within the body of Christ. It's unfortunate that the children of God often adopt values and lifestyles that put relationships within the family of God in hazard. When the Corinthians questioned Paul's apostleship, were they not judging him according to worldly values? Yes. When husbands and wives are in conflict with each other, is it not because one of them, often both of them, have somewhere adopted the values of the world? It's lies, it's darkness, it's idols of pleasure, self-fulfillment, personal satisfaction, self-esteem, self-worth. In the same way, when the children of God argue, fellowship disrupting, peace disrupting, arguments and conflicts within the Church of Jesus Christ, when relationships between the children of God are strained, when we fight and quarrel and then retreat into silence and say nothing and hold judges and withhold forgiveness, when we drop a gossiping word, a disgruntled opinion in this year, in that year, like a buzzing bee, right? Going from flower to flower to flower, member to member. Is it not due to the influence and adoption of sin and worldliness? The people of God and the people of the world are two separate, distinct entities. <clears throat> if you vacation up north in their country, there's a whole set of protocols you need to follow in disposing of garbage. Otherwise, you can wake up in the morning and you can find a bear in your kitchen. The bear is not looking to eat you. He's looking for the T-bone steak that you cooked the night before and then didn't dispose of properly in your bear-proof garbage bin. But our adversary, the church's adversary, Satan, he is a roaring lion, a lion who is deliberately seeking to devour us. 1 Peter 5, 8. And a church gives the devil free license to roam around and devour the church when we adopt the values of the world. Satan can smell that worldly garbage in the church. Beloved, both as individuals and as a church, we need to be guarding our hearts and our tongues with gospel vigilance. Though we live in this world, the Lord calls us to renounce its values, its lifestyle, its choices about how to live, what to buy, how to appear, what to wear, all its godless values and prioritizations. Being raised with Christ, we set our hearts on things above, right? Colossians 3 1. Being raised with Christ, we set our hearts on things above. We cannot, we cannot serve two masters without preferring one over the other. Matthew 6.24. We cannot walk with God and the world at the same time without sooner or later putting in peril our relationship with the Lord and His family. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. And the immediate context of this well-known often cited verse does not speak first and foremost of the forgiveness of our sins. But we are forgiven. What is old, what was once, is not our sins, but rather our former way of looking at Christ and our former outlook on other people. Likewise, that new that has come is our new way of understanding Jesus the Messiah and consequently our new outlook on His family, the family of God, made up of people reconciled with God. 
2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 17. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. So, point number one. Super, super important point to understand. The source of our relational problems are the worldly values that divide and polarize us. That is the problem. And now in our second, much shorter point, Paul presents the gospel promises which unite us. He gives us now the solution. Promise solution, right? These gospel promises are the basis of our union with one another in the city. So take hold of attention. Let's follow the flow of the passage. Chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now we know exactly what he's talking about. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Nothing. The polarization is absolute. Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? None whatsoever. What harmony is it between Christ and Belial? None. Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Absolutely nothing. What agreement is it between the temple of God and idols? None. For, for, we are the temple of the living God. You see what Paul's done here? He's not telling the Corinthians, he's not telling us, New City, pull up your moral socks, you slackers. Do better. Try harder. He's not even putting practical meat on bones in this section. He's, Paul's not saying, <coughs> look, I've seen the, the source of our relational problems, brothers and sisters, are the worldly values that divide and polarize us. Therefore, uh, put others in the church first. He doesn't say that. Uh, serve others. Die to self. If you have a disagreement, uh, seek reconciliation without delay. Don't gossip. Read your Bible. Pray more. Get into an ISF discipleship relationship. He doesn't mention any of that. Instead, he focuses all his attention on what Paul always focuses on, what God has accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus for sin. It's the gospel. Promises made in the Old Testament have now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Paul's telling the church, yes, the source of our relational problems are the worldly values that divide and polarize us. Therefore, act like what you are in Christ. What God has made you in Christ. The temple of the living God. That's the solution. Act like what you are. Listen to what the same apostle writes in Ephesians 2.19-22. to I'll just read this. Consequently, are you the Christians? Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, referring to Gentile Christians, uh, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of this household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Isn't that glorious? Praise God. The, the church, the church is God's eschatological, last time sanctuary. The church. We are the abode of his special revelatory presence. We are indwelt by God himself, the person of the Holy Spirit. The same God whose glorious presence shone in the Holy of Holies. Which means there has been a massive, massive salvation historical shift that's changed everything, including our relationships. That's where he's going with this. It's like landing on the moon and being able to breathe the atmosphere without a space uh, suit. It's something that fundamental. I've used this illustration before, just like, bear with me, I just can't think of a better way to describe it. Remember Back to the Future, right? Martin McFly, he goes back in time. Accidentally, he keeps his parents from meeting and falling in love, which means he's now in danger of not being born. And so, his body begins to fade. The space-time continuum has been disrupted and brought into paradox. There's been a time-warp perversion. In Back to the Future Part 2, the movie's villain, Biff Cannon, he travels back in time and he gives his younger self a sports almanac that he can use to place back for the next 50 years, which creates an alternate timeline that skews into a reality where Biff, the villain, is a millionaire and Marty's father has been murdered. Again, the space-time continuum has been disrupted and brought into paradox. There's been a time-warp conversion, perversion. 
Uh, this is something like what we read here in 2 Corinthians 6. For the new covenant temple of God to live by the values of this fallen world when we have nothing in common, no fellowship whatsoever, no harmony between Christ and Satan, no agreement between the temple of God and idols, for the new covenant temple of God to live by the values of this fallen world, that would be a satanic salvation historical time warp perversion. It would be as if the gospel were all a lie. As if Jesus never actually died and rose again in triumph and bequeathed to the church the Holy Spirit. God forbid. It would be as if the promises of God that he made to Israel, which are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, all came to nothing. As if it all fell to the ground. As if it all failed. Impossible. You see, we are the temple of God God dwells among us. We are His sons and daughters. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. You see? That's the flow of Paul's artwork. It's gospel saturated through and through. Look back at me quickly to these Old Testament promises that Paul cited. Remember, he says in 7 1, therefore, since we have these promises, let us purify ourselves. Well, what are those promises? Look at chapter 6, verse 16. We're just following the flow. 6 16, as God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. That's Leviticus 26. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. Ezekiel 37. And anyone familiar with the Old Testament easily recognizes the promises, that promise repeated over and over. It's first to Abraham, then to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, and to many, many prophets. Already under the Old Covenant, God has promised that He would dwell among His people. Chapters 25 to 40 of the book of Exodus lay out the preparation for God dwelling among His people. Then the entire book of Leviticus, as well as the first part of the book of Numbers, informed us about what it meant for Israel to have God living among them, about how they were to approach Him, to celebrate Him, about the geographical organization of the twelve tribes around the tabernacle, about safe distances to keep, about the consequences of the divine presence in daily life, how one should be dressed, what one was to eat, and so forth. And once they entered into the land of Canaan, the people had to learn once more the responsibilities regarding the presence of God in their midst, as well as heed God's threat of departing from them if they were to follow their own ways, which unfortunately happened for centuries, and which eventually led to their exile to Babylon in the days of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. But this promise concerning his presence with his, with his people was often found in the mouth of the prophets, namely in Ezekiel 37, uh, where the prophet announces the coming of the new covenant. I want us to turn there. This is one of the most important texts in the whole Old Testament. Ezekiel 37 is on page 866, if you're using our church Bible. It is directly linked to our text today. These are the promises that Paul is referring to. Ezekiel 37, 21-28. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Let me show this is the right text. Yes, okay. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back to their own land. So this promise occurs in the context of Ekron. I will make them one nation in the land. On the mountains of Israel, there will be one king over all of them, the greater King David, Jesus Christ. And they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offenses, for I will save them from all their sinful backsliding, and I will cleanse them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, 
They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. Back to 2 Corinthians 7.1. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. But Christians are not only God's temple, we're not only God's people, we're also individual members of His family. Look at chapter 6, verse 18. I will be a father to you. And you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. I know there's a lot going on here. I mean, it's, it's, it's a dense text. But put this all together, and what do we have? In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul presents a series of texts in the Old Testament to remind us that we are the temple of God, that God dwells among us, that we are his sons and daughters, King David's greater son, Jesus, will be our king. That God's people will follow God's laws and be careful to keep God's decrees. And that in the end, all of these promises already present in the Old Testament are now fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in us, His new covenant people. Therefore, you see, if the Lord warns us about the worldly values which divide us in point number one of our text, then through these gospel promises in point two, he assures us of his forgiveness and he comforts us by his presence. Praise God. Praise God. Problem, solution. Right? Finally, number three, after the values that divide us, the promises which unite us, the work that awaits us very quickly. The fact is, the promises of God, as true as they are, will produce lasting fruit among us only as we fulfill the requirements mentioned in 2 Corinthians 6.17, which are also taken from the Old Testament. Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. Isaiah 52.11. Which means, you say, we have work to do. Right? There's our marching orders. Which, this fruit will not come instantly. It doesn't come automatically. This is not a matter of let go and let God. Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no one king thing, and I will receive you. Now be careful. When reading a passage like that, we must not think that our spiritual growth or our piety is based only on obedience to negative commands. Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. And I will be pleased with you. The Lord does not teach us to avoid all contact with those from outside our spiritual circle. Otherwise, we'd have to leave this world, right? 1 Corinthians 5.10. However, the Lord does call us, He does call us to abstain from sinful desires which wage against our souls. 1 Peter 2.14. He calls us to keep ourselves from idolatry. 1 John 5.21. He calls us to flee the evil desires of youth and to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord and have a pure heart. 2 Timothy 2, 22. He calls us to abstain from sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 4, 4. In short, to lose our life, our life Christian, Lord and Savior. Mark 8, 35. To leave behind the world and its glamour. Paul summarizes all of this in one sentence, one sentence which ends this paragraph, 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness, 
that are reverence for God. That is the work that awaits each one of us in 2023. In the world, and in our families, and in the church, as we rely on God's gospel promises, we separate from all evil and actively pursue holiness. Here's our marching orders, right? Separate from all evil, actively pursue holiness as we rely on God's gospel promises. And note the order. God doesn't command us to get our act together first in order for him to have anything to do with us. Romans 4, 5, one of, the, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. God justifies the ungodly. Nor does God say that our sanctification relies solely on our own efforts. Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. Note the initiative is the Lord's, just as He did not wait until Israel obeyed before entering the world with them, so He doesn't wait until we clean ourselves from our own sins to bring us into the new covenant with Him. He justifies us before calling us to sanctification. A sanctification based upon these old covenant promises that God will be our God and that we are His people. That we are the temple of God. That God dwells among us. That He will be a Father to us. And that we are His sons and daughters. That King David's greater son, Jesus, will be our King. That God's people will follow God's laws and be careful to keep God's decrees his Spirit will enable us. It's with these same promises, these same precious promises, now fulfilled in Jesus Christ in this era of the new covenant, the inaugurated kingdom of God, that we can actively perfect sanctification and holiness out of a holy fear of God, awe-filled reverence for Him. Brothers and sisters, in conclusion, in a broken, sinful world, broken relationships are inevitable. Even in the church, we will always, always have our quibbles, our quarrels with others and others with us. In 2023, that is going to happen. This unfortunate reality has two causes. We are sinners, and so are our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. However, in our mutual relationships, we all need to adopt God's perspective. Without hiding the sins of others or sweeping our own under the carpet, we're all called to strengthen our relationships with one another under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And now we know how. So, let's take this truth into the year 2023, and may this year, by God's enabling grace, may we be able to put into practice the things that we've learned today in His Word. Let us abandon the worldly values that divide us. Let us rely on those gospel promises that unite us and do the work that awaits us. Amen. Let me pray.